How did the British-born son of a midshipsman in the Royal Navy go on to not only become one of our greatest military heroes, but also one of the greatest Canadians in history? A man so revered that his name still graces the likes of towns, counties, schools, roads, postage, and currency nationwide. He arrived to our country in 1804 and has never left. I speak of Major General Sir Isaac Brock, and in his honor, I will not only be making a tasty and easy-to-make stir-fry dish, but we will also be briefly touching on the highlights in the life of a man known as the Hero of Upper Canada. Without further ado, I give you today's Mastication Theatre, Beef and General Isaac Broccoli. Now to get started, let's go over the list of ingredients that will be needed for the meal. You will need the following. At least a pound of steak or a roast. Stewing beef can be used, but you may want to tenderize it first. Four cups of broccoli florets. That's just a fancy way of saying the top part of the broccoli. You'll need one onion, preferably a white one or a cooking one, and cut it into small wedges. Three tablespoons divided of cornstarch. Divided just means that it'll be used in more than one area of your recipe. You're going to need approximately one and a half cups of water, half a teaspoon of garlic powder, two tablespoons of vegetable oil, a third of a cup of soy sauce, I recommend low sodium, two tablespoons of brown sugar, a teaspoon of fresh grated ginger. Now in a pinch, you can use ground prepared ginger, but you're going to want to dial it back just a smidge. You're also going to want your favorite rice or noodle, chopped green onions, and toasted sesame seeds. The last two are really just an optional garnish. Now the first job I had working in any form of a kitchen was when I was 14 years old and it was at a small family-owned pizzeria in my hometown. And while I would come to have, well, more than a few jobs in between, I've never felt more at home than I did in the kitchen. In contrast, Isaac Brock enlisted in the British Army at the age of 15 and would spend the next 27 years of his life in its service. Uh, needless to say, the man immediately knew his own calling, where it took me almost 20 years to realize mine. Now, despite being in the British Army for the majority of his life, Brock didn't see a whole lot of action, especially not before the actions of 1812. Now, sure, in 1799, him and his men, the 49th, did cut their teeth in battle during the early stages of the Napoleonic Wars, but they were ordered to the Canadian colonies in 1801 and arrived here in 1804. Thus, they missed out on the majority of the Napoleonic conflict. Now, upon arriving in Montreal, Brock is faced with deserters, mutineers, and inadequately prepared troops and defenses. This is a man who is known for taking immediate charge, and it's something you will see continue throughout our talk here. So Brock goes into the United States Territory to apprehend those who have deserted. He personally leads a trip to Fort George, where he puts down a mutiny and arrests those who had planned it before it could ever take shape. But most importantly, he begins to rapidly and aggressively bolster the fortifications and armaments of Lower Canada. Now, having come from a modest background and receiving pretty much no formal education, Brock becomes an avid reader at a very early age, and it's something that he continues throughout his entire life. This allows him to read countless books about military planning, strategy, and he also retains this information like a sponge. And he uses this and puts it into action immediately when he comes to Canada. He extends and builds up 
the Provincial Marine. These are the people who are responsible for transportation on the waterways and the Great Lakes. This allows quick movement of men and materials to places in need. It also allows Brock to have an advantage on a potential enemy, despite having an undersized force. Now, you may wonder why. Why was this all necessary? You see, we're only 20 years removed from the American victory over the British in the Revolutionary War. And it's no secret that the Americans have had their eyes set on all the land that they can get their hands on. Not only did they just complete the Louisiana Purchase with the French, you know, Britain's arch-enemy, but they've openly stated that the occupation of Canada, a British colony, would come at a, quote, mere matter of marching, end quote. This is what's known as Manifest Destiny. It's a very, very fancy way of just saying that the Americans basically want to just gobble up the entire continent. Now, even though it takes eight years, numerous promotions, and political reassignments to get there, Brock's preparations prove all in good faith when the declaration of war between America and Britain happens on June the 18th, 1812. The first month of the war goes by with little to no action, but all that's going to change on July the 12th when the Americans invade at a place called Sandwich, which is modern-day Windsor, Ontario. Having not been allowed to openly attack the Americans, Brock now uses this invasion as an excuse to take a force and meet the Americans. It takes Brock about one week to reach Amherstburg, but when he does, it is here that he meets the great Shawnee chief Tecumseh. Brock and Tecumseh are synonymous with one another when it comes to Canadian history, and especially the War of 1812, as both men had a mutual respect for one another. But it took more than one meeting for this to occur. Since their invasion, the United States force has since retreated back to their stronghold at Fort Detroit. Here is where we see one of Brock's smartest moves and biggest gambles. He has inside information about the forces inside Detroit, since he has intercepted the dispatches, which is just handwritten messages that a commander would send to his other forces to let them know what's going on. Remember, 1812, there's no phone, no communication, no Morse code, no nothing at this point. In these dispatches, the American general, William Hull, has let it slip that he's apprehensive about meeting the British in open field conflict. He's also terrified about the indigenous warriors that fight alongside the British. And he's running out of food. Even though his forces are outnumbered and woefully unprepared, Brock decides to attack. He uses deception as his biggest advantage. He has his militia troops dress as British regulars and uses irregular marching patterns to make it seem like he has more men. He orders Tecumseh to have his men cross in front of the fort multiple times before doubling back undercover and do it all over again, thus making it seem like there are thousands of indigenous warriors. Lastly, Brock sends a message to Hull, hinting that if and when the fort falls, Brock will have little to no control over Tecumseh's soldiers. And you know what? It works. Hull surrenders Detroit to Brock in order to save his quote-unquote men and civilians from the horrors of an Indian massacre. 2,500 U.S. troops and 700 civilians surrender, and Brock doesn't lose a man. Well, needless to say, the respect factor between Tecumseh and Brock goes up a little bit here. 
On October 13th, 1812, nearly two months after his victory over the Americans at Detroit, Brock is summoned from Fort George to Queenston Heights. The Americans have landed on the Canadian side of the Niagara River. They've taken the high ground and artillery battery and are using it to shell the British position. Immediately upon his arrival, Brock takes stock of the situation and orders an immediate counterattack to retake the heights and prevent the Americans from landing more men and to ultimately drive them back across the river. He personally leads the charge up the hill, yelling orders and encouraging his men when they bottle up under fire. Then he's hit by two shots. The first hits him in the wrist of his sword hand. The second one proves to be fatal. A shot straight to the heart. Now, despite the myth of his last words, he was said to have died immediately without uttering a word. His last words were said to be, Surgeet, push on, to surge. But as I said, dead immediately. Now, using his death as a rallying cry, his next in command, John McDonald, and I'm not talking about the great Blue Jays defensive shortstop of the 2000s. Now, John McDonald assumes control and urges the men to avenge the general. They did, and were successful in driving the Americans off of the heights and back across the river, though MacDonald does get shot in the back and dies the next day. Now in the aftermath, Brock's body was taken to Fort George, where the path was lined by his men, indigenous troops, and civilians. His funeral at Fort George was attended by 5,000 people, and he was given a 21-gun salute by both the British and the Americans. Now talk about respect. In honor of him, the British placed a small cairn, which is, is a pile of rocks usually formed up into uh, kind of like an obelisk shape. Um, so they placed a small cairn on the spot where he fell and opened a monument to him in 1824, where both he and MacDonald's bodies were relocated to. Now that memorial stood until 1840, when it was blown up by supposed Irish sympathizers. This is a couple, couple decades before, like, the Fenian raids. After that, a new monument was erected, and it still stands there today. So, why are we talking about Brock? Well, I mean, apart from a very easy ingredient tie-in. For me, Brock's one of the first figures in Canadian history that absolutely fascinated me. Now, this is important because being young and a budding history enthusiast can be, well, difficult to do given how boring our history seems to be at that age. I mean, especially in comparison to our, uh, you know, neighbors to the south. Not only that, but growing up here in Ontario, Brock has always seemed more myth than man. A true Canadian hero, despite being neither born here or naturalized. You can retrace his steps from Fort York to Fort George to his ultimate resting place at Queenston Heights. You know, it amuses me how highly we Canadians regard him in our history, even though he had a very strong dislike for being here and the colonists themselves. It's noted that multiple times during his stay here, he requested to be reassigned to the European theater where he viewed Napoleon as the greater threat. And I mean, history would probably prove that, well, Brock's right. He, he never felt at home here. He never fully trusted the colonists, and he believed them to be American sympathizers who would switch their allegiance at the drop of a hat. Now that said, it does go to show what kind of man he was. When one of his requests for reassignments was finally granted, he declined because he believed his duty lay with Canada in the face of American aggression. Now let's get back to our recipe. Alright, so I've already given you your list of ingredients. Now, 
let's go through how we're going to prepare it. Now, before we start, wash your hands, especially given all that is going on in the world today. With that done, add two cups of water to a saucepan and bring it to a boil. While we wait for our water to boil, let's take some time now to chop our onions, remove our florets, and measure out the other ingredients. Now that your vegetable prep is done, you'll want to trim and remove any fat or silver skin that is on your cut of beef. Then thinly cut the beef into strips about 2-3 to three inches in length and place them in a mixing bowl. Now since we just handled raw meat, let's go wash our paws again so we can avoid cross-contamination. Before we go any further, let's heat up our pan over medium-high heat. You always want to heat the pan before you add the oil, then allow the oil to heat up before adding our ingredients. With our pan heating up, let's prepare our cornstarch mixture. Combine two tablespoons of cornstarch with two tablespoons of water and the half teaspoon of garlic powder. Mix until the cornstarch and garlic powder have completely dissolved and pour this over the beef, making sure to mix and toss to get a nice even coating. I'm not going to lie, this isn't going to look very appealing at all, especially when it starts cooking and is leaving a large fond or residue on the bottom of your pan. But fret not! Not only are you not going to have to really worry about scrubbing that, but it'll be worth it at the end. While cooking, you'll want to flip and turn the beef so it browns on all sides. When the meat has been browned on all sides and is done to your degree of satisfaction, remove it from the pan and set it aside with a cover so it remains warm. With the beef removed from the pan, add the remaining tablespoon of vegetable oil and allow it to briefly heat up before adding the onions. You're going to want to sweat the onions until they are a translucent, and tender. Tender. As soon as this is achieved, add the broccoli to the pan and cook until tender but crisp. Once the broccoli is cooked, now comes the time to reintroduce the beef to the pan. Up next comes the sauce. Now for our stir-fry sauce, you're going to combine the soy sauce, brown sugar, fresh ginger, remaining tablespoon of cornstarch, remember, divided, and half a cup of water in a bowl and blend it until smooth. Now when I say blend, I just mean stir with a fork. You don't actually have to use an immersion blender. Add the sauce to the pan and cook for two minutes, allowing it to thicken while continually stirring and tossing to ensure an even distribution of sauce. Not only that, but the constant stirring is also going to help break up that fond we talked about at the bottom, which will not only add extra flavor, but as I said, will also help making cleaning the pan that much easier. Well, once the sauce is thickened and everything is coated, serve over your rice or noodles and top with a garnish of chopped green onions and toasted sesame seeds, or both. Now, I absolutely love this recipe. Uh, my family and I probably have it at least once every two weeks. The best thing about it is not just how quick and easy and tasty it is, but just how much room there is for some improv. Now, I highly recommend experimenting with the recipe and adding your favorite vegetables and proteins. I mean, you could really throw in some shrimp. You could throw some chicken in this. I mean, you can use this stir-fry sauce in another stir-fry. Uh, personally, I always add mushrooms. I always add some bell peppers, usually red or green. Um, I, we love putting carrots. Uh, we love bok choy, different degrees of chilies, cashews, almonds. And in fact, one nice little thing you can do is actually take that stalk of the broccoli, 
once you've removed the florets, you trim it up so it's like a square, and then you thinly slice it and put it in there. And it is incredible. Now, before I leave our conversation for today, I'd like to dedicate this very first episode to my grandmother, Diane, better known as Sherman, who not only took me to Fort York as a child, but has also been my greatest teacher and main inspiration behind my adventures in the culinary arts. Until next time, cheers. Before I completely sign off on today's show, one last thing of note. If you are looking for a bit more of a visual aid in helping you prepare this recipe, please go to our YouTube channel, Hungry Historian, and follow along there. Until next time, cheers.